Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. When was the last time you saw the Emirates Stadium that full after the final whistle? Incredible scenes once again at the home of football. A big welcome to everyone for this live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast, part of the 90 Min Football Network. And today we're going to be looking back at Arsenal's victory over Fulham in the Premier League. It was late. I don't want to go as far as saying it was great because of the opponent, but uh, Arsenal did get over the line and Arsenal made it four wins out of four. Some real character on show from Mikel Arteta's side. And we're going to be breaking it down right here on the Chronicles of Aguna Live. If you haven't done so already, please leave a like on the video. If you are watching us on YouTube, if you're listening via audio, though, please do leave us a review. Let's say a few hellos in the live chat as well, and then we'll jump right into it. Big hello to Paul uh, to answer. Uh, big hello to Steve, to Harvey, to Afsa, uh, to Makuma, uh, to Creambone. Hope you're well, my friend. Uh, to Glenn, to Ayush, uh, to Pavel, to Zebik. Hope you guys are all well. To 1-0 to the Arsenal. Noah Daniels is with us as well. Julian too. Uh, Azruz, um, Mafia Boss, Ebi Vanda, Bashka. Uh, not an actual Mafia Boss, just a screen name. Uh, big hello to Michael. Uh, what else have we got? What else have we got? Dom uh, is with us. Ekene is with us. So, so many of you in the live chat. Lots that I've missed as well. Uh, So apologies for that. But let's get into the game. Let's get into the day on the whole yesterday because, look, when I was on my way to Emirates Stadium and I got the team news that both Thomas Partey, Alexander Zinchenko were unavailable that Manchester City had come back from being 2-0 down, that Chelsea looked as though they were going to get all three points against Leicester despite going down to 10 men. Liverpool were were eight, nine goals to the good at that point. You kind of started to think, this might not be a great day for us. Manchester United had obviously won earlier in the day as well. Um, And as I say, the team news, I think, put, for me personally, a bit of a dampener going into the game because... I think we can all recognise over the course of these early weeks of the season how important both of those two players have been in in different ways, in some ways, in similar ways. But ultimately, you know, you know that there's a drop off when those two are not in the side based on what we've seen so far. So I'll start off with with Thomas Partey, who has just been so good at the start of this campaign. Thomas Partey is always good when he's fit. We all know that when he's as close to peak condition as he can be, that he's a a really brilliant midfielder, someone capable of holding and patrolling the midfield pretty much alone. But he also gives us so much in terms of ball progression, in terms of in the build-up, in terms of being able to get the ball off of the back line, turn and break lines. That's what Thomas Partey brings to the side, apart from his brilliant defensive instincts and all the other bits and pieces. As for Alexander Zinchenko, I don't actually think that defensively he's amazing. I've got to be honest. I think that Kieran Tierney would still be my preference in a game where I thought we were going to have our backs against the wall and where we needed to keep a clean sheet and we were battling and we were fighting. 
And to be fair to Kieran Tierney, I don't think he did anything wrong from a defensive standpoint, but I think it was really evident. And I know that the the absence of Thomas Partey would have played a part in this as well. But I thought it was really evident that actually we are a little bit one-dimensional at times with Kieran Tierney at left-back, not because he's a bad player, but because he doesn't have that sophistication to his game, i.e. he's not going to step into uh, the midfield. He's not going to get alongside Thomas Partey uh, or whoever is playing in that in that position. So, yeah, it, it's different, isn't it? And, you know, Tierney's probably more effective, um, you know, He's probably more effective when um, when you wanted to go on the outside, but when it comes to sort of stepping inside, he's not anywhere near as effective as I say as um, as uh, yeah as uh, Alexander Zinchenko. Different game, um, different players, both bring different things to the table. I'm not wanting to criticise Kieran Tierney, but it's just different, isn't it? It's just different, and we saw that. We saw that, and. Look, we'll come on to talk about the players that came into the team um, as a result and their performances a little bit later on in the show. But I want to start off by talking about the atmosphere around the place because, you know, it was a 5.30 kickoff. People have time to to go out, have a few drinks, enjoy themselves, get into the mood. But I just thought, um, I just thought that it was noticeably buoyant when you got to the stadium yesterday. I went through the turnstile. Um, and, and even in the concourses, half an hour, 45 minutes before kickoff, it was A, packed, and B, it was as raucous as I've seen an atmosphere at Emirates Stadium before a game. You know, it, and it wasn't a North London derby. It wasn't Manchester United. It wasn't Liverpool. It wasn't Chelsea. It wasn't particularly what you would class as a glamour game, was it? It was a game against the newly promoted side that there was a lot of pressure on us to win because... You know, Fulham haven't won away at Arsenal, I think, for 30 odd years or whatever it was, the statistic that was um, sort of given to us, you know, pre-game. But you can just see that there is a, a real positivity. There is a real edge. You know, Mikel Arteta has been so big on building this connection with the fans. He talks about it every week. And although, you know, some people will sit there and think, well, maybe... You know, he, he can kind of stop that now. Like maybe he doesn't need to mention the atmosphere, the energy being transmitted before every game and after every single game. But my God, my God, um, you know, it, it, it's improved. And actually, I think subconsciously he's doing a great job of making that relevant all the time. And reminding us of what our role is as a fan base going into every single game. And also by talking about it post-game, he's giving recognition to the fact that the Arsenal fans are playing a big part, which again spurs you on as a supporter when you get into the stadium to want to do it more, to, to be more mindful of it, more conscious of it and the impact you can have and how you can lift the team when they're going through really difficult moments. So all of that was great. And then, of course, the game started. And I actually thought, in terms of Arsenal's overall performance, it was very, very good. It was very good. I don't understand this narrative that seems to be doing the rounds at the moment. Um, you know, Arsenal were fortunate yesterday. Some of my non-Arsenal supporting friends text me last night, lucky Arsenal, typical Arsenal, jammy as ever, getting over the line through fortune more than anything else. And my reply to, to three people that sent me those types of messages was, you clearly didn't watch the game. Because if you think Arsenal were fortunate to take all three points yesterday, then you didn't watch the football. You didn't. You maybe were glancing on live score, whatever. You saw the timing of the goal. Um, you know, maybe saw the nature of or heard about the nature of Martin Odegaard's equaliser and decided that you were going to take it upon yourself to say, that it was it was fortunate and it was lucky and it's just one of those lazy bits of analysis and it's a lazy narrative isn't it because arsenal were totally dominant 22 attempts at goal and 72% of the possession fulham didn't play any football yesterday they had a couple of opportunities towards the back end of the game when it got a little bit stretched after mikel arteta had taken the decision having gone 1-0 down 
to take off the left back and throw on another striker. We lost our shape. We lost our structure a little bit. It did get a bit frantic at times, but sometimes you need that in order to be able to go out there and um, and get what you need and to create those openings and, and to kind of cause chaos in order to create chances. It, it's part and parcel of football. So, yeah, um, you know, that was kind of how I saw the game in general and, and the victory was was nothing more than we deserved. The three points were nothing more than we deserved because we were by far the better team. We had lots of chances. We forced Bern Leno into some saves. We probably should have done a lot better with some of those early chances. Uh, the ones that came in the first half, the Xhaka one springs to mind, the Saka one as well. And if you score those goals, <laughs> if you score those goals, then, you know, then it's a much more comfortable afternoon. Nobody's talking about any fortune. People are instead talking about a routine win. But it wasn't a routine win because the Premier League sometimes throws up these types of surprises. The standard of the Premier League in terms of everybody being competitive, barring maybe one or two sides, is very, very high. Um, you think about, you know, the, the fact that Fulham, who many people thought would just go straight back down and, and still might. But you just talk about Fulham as, as one of those that you would say is a given. Yet this is a side that drew with Liverpool on the opening day of the season, beat Brentford last week, got a respectable draw against Wolves, a game that they probably could have won. And, you know, they've they've come into the league and they've been really good, really structured. Marco Silva's doing a really, really good job there. And, and then when you make a mistake like the one Gabriel did and you go a goal behind, then it becomes difficult. But it was a victory of character yesterday because Arsenal stuck with it. Arsenal continued... Um, you know, to push and, and Mikel Arteta was bold and brave in his decision, I thought, to just take off a left back and go the way he did with Eddie Nketiah. We'll come on to talk about, again, individual performances a little bit later on. The atmosphere was great. It certainly helped. And, you know, Arsenal ultimately won the game from a set piece. And when you think back to how we were when it came to set pieces pre-Mikel Arteta and how we are today, I'd say generally we're much better defensively when it comes to set pieces, although having said that, there were a couple of moments yesterday from set pieces where I thought we were poor defensively and Aaron Ramsdale was forced into saves. Um, but generally speaking, you'd say Arsenal have improved in that department. And generally speaking, you'd say Arsenal are much more of a threat from them. I think last season there wasn't a team in the Premier League that scored more goals from corners. We have that threat now. And so often over the years, games were decided by those details, the set pieces, the moments that could prove pivotal and we weren't good enough. And Arteta's recognised that that's a big part of football. It's a big way of getting advantages, even the slightest advantages. And he's worked hard on it and he's brought someone in. You know, managers very often can be stubborn, you know, and but to acknowledge that you don't have the skill set or the knowledge or understanding of one particular area of the game and then go and hire somebody who does and brings that to the table is part of being a great manager, right? You, you have to recognise, understand that you can't be an expert in every aspect of the sport and every aspect of the game. And so you need to bring the right people in around you. That's what good managers do as well. Not only do they lead, but they delegate when necessary. And Mikel Arteta has delegated the set-piece duties elsewhere. And as a result, as a consequence, Arsenal are much more effective in that department. Um, and yeah, look, before we go on to individuals and, and various aspects of the game, you know, you've got to talk about the post-match atmosphere. I shared a little clip from the Emirates Stadium. It, having watched it now, it wasn't the best clip. Like, I could have picked a better sort of 30 seconds or whatever it was. But, um, you know, how many people were inside the stadium at the end of the game? Because people acknowledged that this team had gone above and beyond and worked incredibly hard at dug deep mentally, physically, et cetera, et cetera, to get this result and get over the line. And people were appreciative of, appreciative of it. I beg your pardon. And and we saw, you know, we saw that being sort of shown back by the fans. We've heard people outside of Arsenal Football Club be very critical of the way we celebrated. Richard Keyes and Andy Gray on being sports over in the Middle East were not happy. They were having a go. Um, Richard Keyes talked about it being an overreaction said that it was just Fulham, um, a newly promoted side at home. He said also that he found Mikel Arteta irritating. And you know what? It was like, 
mate, you're a professional broadcaster. And believe it or not, once upon a time, right, pre the whole incident that saw Andy Gray and, and Richard Keyes sort of get the boot from Sky Sports, and they deserved it, right, for what they did. You know, they deserved it. There was no way that Sky could continue with them after that. And I, I totally accept that, totally acknowledge that. And I, I just want to be clear, I'm not for a second saying that, um, you know, that they shouldn't have gone. They absolutely should have. But even after that, there was a tiny part of me that thought, you know, clearly they've got prejudices. Clearly they're out of date. Clearly they're dinosaurs in a lot of ways. But I still had a respect for them as broadcasters because they were almost pioneers, Sky Sports, in the way that they took football coverage up to a next level. And those two guys were a big, big part of that. Andy Gray was the first proper pundit, I would say, the first pundit that went into that level of detail that would bring you that level of analysis. And I used to watch Monday Night Football and Andy Gray's analysis religiously when I was growing up. And so even though I don't agree with his views and and, and what he did and, and think it was absolutely 100% right that he was moved on, there has always been this underlying respect from me anyway for Andy Gray as a pundit. So, you know, Richard Keyes has just become bitter. He's just become somebody who's always seeking to be relevant in whichever way, whether it's having a go at the Newcastle fans, now it's having a go at the Arsenal fans. He's always looking to stay relevant, Richard Keyes. And I, and I, I you know, my respect for him is, is at zero um, now in comparison to what it was. But I was disappointed to hear it from Andy Gray because, as I say, despite all that went on, I had a lot of respect for him as a pundit back in the day. And then when people kind of get to that stage where they're clearly out of date, clearly just looking to stay relevant, you do feel a bit sorry for them, don't you? And and that's where I am with Andy Gray, you know. But they were moaning about Arsenal celebrating. You know, they they basically called it an overreaction. And I just think it's ironic that you criticise an overreaction by then overreacting and taking it from the celebrations within the stadium to Mikel Arteta and how irritating you find him. I don't think as a professional broadcaster on a platform like that, you should be sitting there saying, um, I find this manager irritating. Like there are managers that I find irritating. There are players that I find irritating. But you know your audience, don't you? Depending on what it is you're doing. Like I know, for example, I can say on the Chronicles of Aguna, what I want to say is my platform. I'm I'm free to say what I want to say. I can show my biasness towards Arsenal at times without it being a problem. I can, um, you know, I can cross that line of what is fair and neutral on this platform because it is my Arsenal platform. But you won't catch me on a broadcast. You won't catch me when I'm doing reports uh, on the radio calling managers irritating and all of that stuff. And I just, yeah, I, I just didn't like it. And it's really wound me up. Probably spent way more time than I should have talking about that. But yeah, um, good to see that a lot of people have jumped uh, up and and I, I don't want to say had a go at them because I don't want people to personally start attacking people and, and start throwing insults about, but rightly calling them out for that bit of punditry, that bit of analysis, which I think was lazy, poor, distasteful, etc., etc. Okay, let's run um, through the team and then we'll talk. No, actually, let's talk about some of the key incidents first. So the first goal, the Fulham goal. Yeah, I mean, look, they didn't look like scoring at all. They didn't do anything. They didn't cause us any problems. I can't remember Aaron Ramsdale having to make any contribution of note uh, prior to that moment. People were, were talking a lot about Mitrovic in the lead up to the game the threat he poses aerially, the fact that he would bully our fullbacks um, from set pieces and by drifting out to those positions. He tried it a couple of times against Ben White. And Ben White, there was once in the second half in particular that sticks out in my mind where he sort of read Mitrovic's intentions, understood what he was trying to do, understood that he was trying to get across him and just eased him out of the way, just put his body in a position that meant that Mitrovic couldn't get across him in the way that he was seeking to do. And that was great defending. And I'd said that um, Mitrovic wasn't going to be able to bully uh, Ben White in the way that he's done to, um, you know, the, the way he's done to Trent Alexander-Arnold this season and the way he's done to others. So 
yeah and there was a clip going around of me on on the 90 min platforms where i'd said that and i was sitting there going please please don't allow alexander mitrovic to pop up at the far post and score a header look he did get on the score sheet in the end and as much as it's down to gabriel making a mistake you have to give credit where credit is due you have to give alexander mitrovic praise for being switched on for being tenacious for putting the work rate and the effort in and then having the power and strength to win that ball off of Gabriel where he did. And from then on, he was always going to score. It was a good finish. Um, but the mistake should never have happened. I saw some pictures post-match of Gabriel and Bukayo Saka seemingly embroiled in discussion. People, I think, assumed that it was about um, it was about that goal and the way it came about. Saka was in the right back position at the time and he played this chipped ball across our penalty area which is never ideal in my opinion people say he should have he shouldn't have played it so high it would have been easier for gabriel to bring it down and control it therefore he wouldn't have got caught in the way, the way he did I, th I don't think saka can play that pass safely without lifting it so i'm not going to place too much of it at saka's door in fact i'm probably going to say that none of it really is is down to what bukayo saka did in the action previously, but Gabriel clearly felt that way and, and wanted to say his piece. I just think having brought it down, you've got to be aware of where Mitrovic is and you've got to clear it quickly and early. And if it means going long and going aimlessly, then you do that. Yeah, it's not a position that you can afford to lose the ball in. And we've said it before, Gabriel has got these moments in him. You know, he does. He, he does switch off sometimes. He does have these moments of madness. He does have these moments where he appears to lose all composure. Um, you know, maybe you could argue this time that it was maybe too much composure. Maybe it was too lackadaisical and there wasn't enough urgency in his action. I don't know how you want to look at it, but either way, we know that Gabriel can switch off. We know that these things happen. Um, and hopefully over the course of his career, you know, he, he reduces those those in terms of their frequency. But the, the benefits he brings us are, are so significant that you kind of have to just not let it go. You should always strive to improve. You should always uh, strive to do things better, but you kind of have to accept that with the good comes the bad sometimes with Gabriel. And, um, and yeah, thankfully we didn't, we didn't lose the game or drop points as a consequence of it. But, you know, then you talk about the Arsenal goals and, and, and I thought, you know, we were good value for them. We really pressed, we harried, we won the ball back very quickly every time we lost it. And that's a large reason and a large part of why we had 72% of the possession, which is a lot in the Premier League. Um, but yeah, you know, we, the, the first goal, I was delighted that it was Martin Odegaard that got it because he'd been so workmanlike throughout the game. He'd been everywhere. He'd been closing people down. He'd been winning the ball back. He'd been trying to thread passes through the eye of a needle. He was desperately trying to make that breakthrough and he was desperately trying to set somebody up. And, you know, at times Odegaard can be a little bit frustrating in that he gets the ball on the edge of the box. He's looking for the perfect pass. He's looking for the perfect one-two, the perfect combination, where maybe at times he should just unleash it. He should just strike towards goal. And ultimately, you don't shoot, you don't score. And if he doesn't shoot uh, from where he did, then we don't score. It takes a big deflection off of the defender, um, which wrong-foots Bern Leno in the Fulham goal. But that's the bit of fortune that we needed and we deserved ultimately for having dominated the entire game and having found ourselves behind basically from Fulham's first real chance of the game. Uh, again, and it was a chance of our own making. So, yeah, um, but the build up to that goal, the way we were zipping the ball around quickly, the way the passes were moving, the way that we were creating overloads on one side, overloads on the other, we were getting midfield runners forward was just brilliant to see. But that step over in the lead up to the goal, just before Odegaard strikes it, the step over that completely takes Tim Ream out of the game is just sublime. It's magic. Um, and it creates that half a yard from which he gets the shot off. And there you go. Arsenal have the equaliser. But that wasn't the only moment of brilliance in terms of close control and skill from Martin Odegaard on the day. I thought he was brilliant at skipping past people, made it look so easily. The chopping back inside, the going on the outside. So, so much to admire from Martin Odegaard yesterday. People talk about whether it was the right decision making in the captain. I said it in my instant reaction video. He isn't the most vocal. He isn't going to go around shaking people up. He isn't going to go around um, ruffling feathers, but he is someone who leads by example, not just in terms of on the ball, 
but in terms of off of it as well. I, I remember just before he was substituted, Fulham broke down their left-hand side, our right-hand side, and it was Martin Odegaard who followed the runner right back towards the edge of our penalty area and made an intervention and, and supported in the defensive action. And listen, this guy is just, you know, he's on another level. He, he's just so, so good. And when you think that we paid 35 odd million pounds for him, it was an absolute steal, wasn't it? Brilliant recruitment. Um, a brilliant player, leads by example. I also loved as well, I know this is kind of like a, maybe a bit of a moot point in in a lot of people's eyes, but for me, the fact that when he scored the equaliser, he didn't go crazy. He didn't sort of run to the corner, give it the old knee slide and all of that stuff that we're used to seeing. Instead, he went, yeah, you know what? We're back in the game, but this ain't good enough. we got to win this. We've got to go out there and, and, and get the second. We've got to take this to Fulham and we've got to be leaving here this afternoon with three points. And I, I think sometimes goal celebrations can set the tone. This might sound absolutely bonkers, but you score a goal, an equaliser against Fulham, and you go absolutely batshit crazy. What does that say to me? It says to me that you're delighted to be level and that is your level and that is what you're accepting. You score a goal the way that Martin Odegaard did that gets you back on level terms and your first inst uh, your first reaction is to A, turn around and run back towards the halfway line because you want to get on with it. Tells everybody that that's not happy, that you're not happy being level. That's not enough. The crowd obviously reacted um, really, really positively as well to it. And then he goes over to Gabriel who comes over and he's sort of as if to say, don't worry about it. It's done now. We've leveled it. Let's get on with it. And then the winning goal was scored by Gabriel. You couldn't have written a better story, really. And that's what Gabriel gives you in the opposition penalty area. I think he was the highest scoring defender in the Premier League last season. And, you know, he's got a goal again already. What, four games in? Um, you know, had to be in the right place at the right time. Arsenal clearly planned to put the ball in that area, um, in around the near post. Bert Leno struggled with it, as, as we've seen many times over the years. Bert Leno, not the most dominant goalkeeper from set pieces. Um, and, you know, the ball broke kindly for Gabriel, who was on hand to finish it from close range. And a lot of people inside the stadium actually thought that William Saliba scored the goal. Because he span uh, away and ran to the corner flag as if it was him that got it. Um, obviously, he was just celebrating. But yeah, at the end of the day, um, I think that confused a lot of people. It was, of course, Gabriel who put it in. And then there was that agonizing VAR check. At the time in the stadium, I thought that they were checking whether the ball had come off of Gabriel's arm. And I thought, well, there's no issue here because I'm essentially right behind that goal. And I didn't. There wasn't even a hint of a handball there for me when it came to Gabriel, but they were looking at um, they were looking at Saliba in the build-up. They were looking at Saliba whether it had come off his arm, and in the end, the decision was taken that it didn't. Correct decision, and uh, and Arsenal ultimately scored the winning goal. Had to do a bit of defending after that, and Aaron Ramsdale deserves some praise for his contribution there, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but yeah, you know, again, the passion, passion, you can feel it. You could feel it. And, you know, people sit there and they talk and they make up stories and they make up narratives about William Saliba. Does he want to be here? Is he happy at Arsenal? Is he invested? Does he want to be a part of this team? Does he want to be a part of this moving forward? Watch his celebration for that goal. Was that the celebration of someone who doesn't care, especially given he wasn't even the one that scored it? No, it wasn't. It was a celebration of someone who's fully invested, who's fully engaged, who wants to be a part of this and recognises that there is something special cooking at Arsenal. So, yeah, going to take a short pause and then we're going to talk about some of um, the individual performances. We'll be taking some of your questions as well uh, from the live chat. If you haven't done so already, please do leave a like on the video. In fact, let's quickly check in on the likes because there are over 630 odd of you. We've only got 106 likes on the board. There's no reason why we shouldn't have at least 300 given how many people are watching. So smash the like button while we take a very, very brief pause and we'll be back to continue our analysis of Arsenal 2, Fulham 1. Whoops, hit the wrong bloody video. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Shocking. Absolutely shocking on my part. Uh, that's why you need a producer, isn't it, really? Okay. Um, just quickly before uh, we move forward, I just want to bring you guys' attention uh, to our partners and friends over at Football Prizes who have very kindly uh, been supporting the Chronicles of Aguna of late. And as we mentioned to you guys uh, throughout the week, there is a fantastic prize on offer currently. And it is a Dennis Burkamp signed and custom framed Arsenal shirt, plus the opportunity to win one of 11 instant win prizes, which are listed there on the website. Tickets cost £4.95. There are 299 available the competition ends on Tuesday, the 30th of August at 7.30 p.m. However, it ain't going to last till then. That's the honest truth. Uh, 269 of the 299 tickets have been sold, which means despite there being one day, seven hours and 57 minutes to go at the time of recording, there are only 30 tickets left. So if you want to get involved in this, if you want your chance to win a Dennis Burkamp signed and frame custom Arsenal shirt, courtesy of the good people over at Football Prizes, then click on the link in the description and check it out. Okay, let's get back to it. Let's um, let's break down. Greenbone, <laughs> uh, totally unprofessional, Harry. But you're absolutely right, man. It was terrible. I know, so bad, so bad. Uh, I'm going to come onto your comments in a minute, uh, in just a bit. So hold on to them. Hold on to any questions. Hold on. Uh, to any uh, to any thoughts, and I promise we'll spend a good amount of time going through those. I just want to quickly run through the team in terms of my thoughts on their individual performances. Aaron Ramsdale, really good. Um, a lot of people say his best contribution yesterday was smashing the ball into Alexander Mitrovic's face. I actually hate seeing things like that. I hate it when goalkeepers can't clear the man um, when it comes to a clearance. That always gives me... Um, a heart in the mouth moment. So, um, yeah, that wasn't my favourite part of Aaron Ramsdale's performance, but he made two really vital saves in the second half, contributed and, as always, gave the defenders an option when they were struggling to play out from the back in a really effective way, as he does. Uh, moving on to right back, I thought defensively Ben White was superb. I really do. Um, Mitrovic tried it, as I've mentioned a few times, to drift out there to try and, get, uh, you know, essentially escape the attentions of the centre-backs and give Fulham a target to hit on that far side, particularly when they had the ball on the right. And Ben White, I thought, read it very well, dealt with it very well, tucked in very well when needed. Also tried to help on the outside at times, stepped into midfield uh, quite frequently as well. Didn't have um, as much of an impact as maybe... Um, he'd have liked in the attacking sense, did get forward frequently, but just wasn't able to kind of make that difference. Uh, but ultimately, a very, very good and solid display from him. William Saliba, solid as ever. Didn't put a foot wrong again for me. Um, you know, and with each passing week, his stature grows, his confidence grows, our confidence and faith in him as a fan base grows. And I'm, I'm so delighted with the way he started. Uh, the Premier League season. Gabriel, outside of that one moment of madness, was superb and ultimately got the winning goal. Um, so credit to him. Kieran Tierney, for me, struggled to impact the game going forward. Um, you know, Mikel Arteta has spoken in the past about him and Tierney not being the best, him and Tierney, him and Martinelli uh, not being the best combination necessarily. And I think there's an element of truth to that. And, I, and I'll explain why. So just briefly, without going into it too deep, I think that um, Kieran Tierney is clearly a, a traditional style fullback who wants to more often than not, when he does get forward, be doing it on the outside. He wants to be going around people. He wants to be trying to get as close to the byline as possible. And he wants to be delivering balls into the penalty area. But in Gabriel Martinelli, you've got somebody who loves to start really wide. He gives so much width to the team because when he receives the ball, it's more often than not right out on that flank. And he wants to have that time and that space to bring it down, 
get it under his spell, bring it under control, and then drive, um, and then drive in field and cause people problems. That's what Martinelli's game is about. But when you've got a winger that does that, it makes it then difficult for the fullback to expose those spaces on the outside because they're always occupied. When Emil Smith-Rowe was playing from the left-hand side last season, Kieran Tierney was having a field day because Emil Smith-Rowe starts the game from a slightly different position. He wants to receive the ball a lot of the time in the half space, which means he's more narrow, which means that that channel on the flank is more open for the fullback to expose. So, yeah, I don't think the two are, are the best combination, but I have to say as well that Kirantini didn't put a foot wrong defensively. And I have to say that Kirantini didn't look 100% fit to me. And remember, this was his first start of the campaign. And so it was, uh, it was to be expected to some degree. Moving into the midfield, uh, Mohamed El Neni. A lot of criticism for his performance. I don't think he deserves criticism. I don't think he was bad. I don't think he warrants criticism. I don't think it warrants people saying, oh my God, he was awful. We need Partey back ASAP. What I think though, is that it shines a light on how important Thomas Partey is and why, again, in my opinion, the biggest need between now and the end of the window, if we're going to do something, is to go and get another central midfielder in who can play that role, at least as close to the level that Thomas Partey plays it. I thought the team were reluctant to play the ball through midfield, perhaps subconsciously because of Thomas Partey's absence. I don't think there's that same trust in Mohamed Elneny from the centre-backs in particular to play that ball in between the lines, to give him the ball with his back to the opposition's goal and in a pressured situation. I don't think, obviously, Elneny progresses the ball beyond the midfield in the same way that Thomas Partey does. And I think we were less happy to play through the middle than we normally are because of the, the Ghanaian's absence. I don't think Elneny did anything wrong per se, but you can see that the level between the two is is very, very different. So, um, yeah, that was kind of my take on it. Xhaka, brilliant again, getting forward, getting back, helping out defensively as well, occupying those half spaces. Probably should have scored a goal um, in the first half when that ball was cut back beautifully to him by Gabriel Jesus. But having watched it again, it was on his weaker right foot. Um you know, it was a volley. It was difficult. But yeah, a really good, solid performance from Granit Xhaka again as well. Martin Odegaard, I've already talked about, superb, was awarded the Man of the Match Award by Sky Sports. And yeah, I don't think anybody would have any arguments about that. Martinelli, great. Again, ran himself into the ground, worked hard, gave us a, uh, a threat on that left-hand side all day, switched over to the right-hand side on a couple of occasions as well, and actually thought gave Anthony Robinson more problems than Bukayo Saka had managed on the other side, even in those short periods for which they switched. Saka was a little bit underwhelming for me again. Um, really should have scored that opportunity that came his way in the first half. It came through fortune, really, but he did well to check back inside on his left foot. Leno did well as well getting out very quickly, closing the angle very quickly. But, you know, I expect Saka to finish that. And I just thought, as I said, he, he didn't get an awful lot out of Anthony Robinson, the Fulham left back, who has a great deal of pace. I appreciate that Saka is a marked man nowadays. You know, people look at him as a threat. People pin players on him. Very often he's doubled up against and he struggled. Um, I'm not, look, I'm at this stage in the season, I'm not worried about Bukayo Saka's performances. But... He hasn't been at the level Martinelli has. He hasn't been at the level that Jesus has so far. So, um, yeah, let's see. Let's see. Um, just quickly touching on that uh, that Partey point before um, before I, I, I move on and, and quickly talk about Gabriel Jesus' performance. Matt says, in fairness to the club, there are very few players who can do what Partey does, who is less than £40 million and will be happy to sit on the bench until Partey is injured. Completely agree with you. And that's what makes it really difficult, isn't it? But I'm not even saying that you need someone necessarily as good as Thomas Partey because it's very hard to find that. And as you say, who are you going to bring that's going to sit on the bench? But what you need is someone similar in profile in terms of what they bring to the table, in terms of what they bring to the game. I think Elneny brings you discipline, work rate, effort, um, all of those things. But does he bring you the ability to progress the ball enough to play in that position? 
I, I don't think so. But you're right. It isn't easy. It, I'm not sitting here saying Arsenal are a disgrace for not having, uh, you know, had a Thomas Partey 2.0 waiting in the wings. But there is a noticeable difference, isn't there? And, um, and you know, but that was also contributed to by the fact that we didn't have Zinchenko because the way he steps in field, the way he joins the midfield and supports that and facilitates that and gives the defenders another option to progress the ball and then can progress it from midfield and beyond certainly took some of that away from us. So the, the combination of the two missing hurt us. And again, the players that came in did a good enough job and, and did the right job, I think, in a lot of ways. But the drop-off in quality in terms of those particular aspects of the game, the attacking and the build-up and the creating was was clear to see, even in Tierney's case, right? Great great defender, much better defender uh, than Zinchenko, in my opinion. But in terms of what he brings, build-up, possession, control, technical ability, the two are not on the same level for me. Zinchenko is superior. Um, let's quickly chat about Gabriel Jesus's performance. I thought it was a very, very good display from him. Again, even if he didn't get an awful lot of joy in terms of clear-cut chances, but he was, you know, drifting left. He was drifting right quite a bit in the sec in the first half, in particular, when he knew that he wasn't going to get much joy in that central area. We were struggling to get the ball to him. He went left. He went right. He battled. He fought. He harried. He hassled. And again, you know, even if he doesn't get on the score sheet, he gives you that, and it supports us in our um, in our press, it supports us in the aggression, keeping that level up. And he's just a great, great player and another good performance from him for me. Um, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, so yeah, that's my kind of analysis or brief breakdown of everybody's performances. Um, let's take some of your questions. Let's take some of your thoughts. Um, what have we got here? What have we got here? Start chucking the questions in. In fact, before I do that, let's quickly check in uh, on the likes. Once again, we're still nowhere near that 300 mark, which we should be getting to easily, man. There's over 630 of you with us right now. If you're not subscribed as well, what are you waiting for? Make sure you're subscribed to the Chronicles of Aguna YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast as well uh, and make sure you leave us a like, review, whatever it is, depending on what platform you are on. Um, also, details of our new membership platform, which I mentioned to you guys on a number of occasions uh, last week, they are um, going to be coming this week. So hopefully by Tuesday, Wednesday, I'll be able to give you the information and we're going to have, we've already recorded some content that's going to go uh, on there, which I'm really, really looking forward to sharing with you guys. Okay, let's take your questions. Let's take your thoughts from the chat box. Um, Don Arsenal says, Harry, do you think Jesus needs to stick in the penalty box more? I think that the idea that Mikel Arteta is trying to get across and, and one of the members bits of content that I'm talking about is a detailed breakdown of what Mikel Arteta's game model is, um, the plan A. And I, I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you because I've done a lot of analysis, a lot of research to come up with it. And I, I can't wait, as I say, to share it with you guys. But do I think that Jesus needs to stick in the penalty box more? Um, I mean, at times, you know, we will work situations and then we'll, we'll provide cutbacks from the byline and, and there won't be that guy in the middle of the pitch, in the middle of the box, because he's drifted somewhere else to, in order to create that moment and create that, that opportunity. But what I would say nowadays that we have maybe more than we've ever had is, is the runners from midfield. Xhaka gets into the box. I mentioned that chance he missed. That was because... He made that run into the box. Odegaard is doing it as well. Maybe the runs from Odegaard are not always as deep, but he certainly gets at least to the edge of the penalty area and just inside it in order to try and make things happen. Sometimes you have to take your striker away in order to pull people away. Sometimes somebody like Jesus, you know, will need to do that and he'll need to be involved and he'll need to go out there and make things happen. And those double ups and overloads that you can create on the right or the left with a mobile striker like Jesus can often be the difference. I mean, if you think back to the Alexis Sanchez and Ozil days, remember how often Ozil used to drift out to the left and the pair of them would combine. Now, not both of them were playing on the left wing, but they'd go there and they'd double up and they'd link up and they'd pull people apart and create spaces in other ways. So I think he does need to be mobile. I do think he needs to occupy different spaces at different points in the game. Um, if he did stick in the penalty box in a game like yesterday, where I thought, although we played really well, we were struggling to have a lot of joy through the middle at times, I think he would have just been isolated. And then you're not utilizing what he brings to the table. 
So I do think that, you know, he will drift from time to time. And I do think he needs to drift from time to time. But I think you make a valid point in that there will be moments where we're sitting there going, where the hell is the centre forward? And and why wasn't the centre forward on hand there to convert? But you look at somebody like Erling Haaland, right? Who, again, I think, I think he had eight touches in each half. I think I saw a match of the day um, in Manchester City's game yesterday, but scored a hat-trick because he was in that position, um, you know, to to finish off. And he was in that position to capitalise on the opportunities created by Manchester City. But it, the fact that he had eight touches in each half when Manchester City were at home against Crystal Palace says to me that there are long periods in the game where the game passes him by because of the way he stays through the middle, because of the fact that he's been instructed to occupy those areas. Now, when those opportunities come along, of course, he's on hand to take them. But we don't have the same level of player in and around the centre-forward that Manchester City do. But the, the point I was trying to make, and the point I maybe diverged away from a little bit there that I shouldn't have, was ultimately that... If you do insist on your strikers staying through the middle, you have to be happy and understanding of the fact that in certain games, they won't get many touches. And I think Jesus is so important to us that we need to get him as involved as possible. And we can't afford to have Gabriel Jesus spend 10, 12 minutes at time being completely isolated and being completely out of the game. Thank you for the question, mate. Great question. Uh, Owen says, uh, Harry, are we winning the league? Yeah, man. <laughs> we're going to win it. No, look, let's not get carried away. Like this Arsenal side are not at the level yet to win a Premier League, let alone challenge for a Premier League. Of course, we're on a good run. The fixtures, I think, have been kind to us up until now. And whilst there's a great deal of things to be positive about and we should be positive about them, I'm not getting carried away. I'm not getting carried away. I, I was on TalkSport 2 the other day with John Jackson and he was trying so hard for about 15 minutes to get me to commit to saying that Arsenal were going to win the league. And I wouldn't do it because I know in my heart of hearts that this team are not at that level yet. But I do know that the team are improving. In Mikel Arteta's first 50 games in the Premier League, Arsenal picked up, I think it was 75 points. And they picked up 100, I think, in uh, in the second 50 games. So... When you look at that, you can see that there's been an, a points improvement. Was that right? Was it? Or Yeah, 50 games, I think it was 75 points. And then the second 50 games was 100 points. I think I think that's what I saw on match of the day. I'm just taking it from memory, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but it shows that there's been like a 25-point improvement over that period of time, which is, is significant, isn't it? It really is. Uh, thank you for that one, Owen. Uh, Pavel says, would you take four points from the next two games? I want three points from Villa and I'd happily take a draw at Old Trafford. So I guess, yes. Um, we always have this debate, don't we? Like we have it quite a bit on this show when we drop points and then we sort of make them up in terms of what we were expected to get elsewhere. Ultimately, it's the same points tally, but it's the mental thing and the mental side of it that I think can be significant. Um, so would I take four points? Yeah, I would. Um, if we drop points against Villa, I would be disappointed. But if we won at Old Trafford, that would override it. Equally, if we were to beat Villa and then get the point at Old Trafford, I would look at it and go, you know what? That's where we should be. That's where we're at. It's a shame that Manchester United seem to, I'm not going to say click into gear. I wouldn't go that far just yet. But Manchester United have got a couple of wins under their belt and they're going to be a very different proposition now. Uh, to the one that we could have faced a couple of weeks ago, for example, but it is what it is. Um, let's take a couple, uh, a few more of your questions. In fact, we've got around about 12, 13 minutes to go. Um, Mino says, uh, any transfer rumours? Nothing new. Um, obviously, game days are are dominated by the game, you know, and, and I try myself not to get too embroiled in the, um, in the transfer tool, but nothing really new. Still links to Tielemans. Still links to Pedro Neto. I don't know if Arsenal are working on anything else that we just don't know about. But if we are, then we're going to hear about it pretty soon because the transfer window closes very, very soon. So the next few days, you think, would be key. Mikel Arteta didn't rule out the idea of bringing people in. I certainly think there'll be more people to leave. Bellerin, Maitland-Niles, I think will probably be two of them. Um, but yeah, in terms of incomings, don't know. Don't know. Uh, Paul James says, uh, would you agree in Ketia put in a perfect impact sub performance? 
absolutely 100%. I actually wrote Enketia down on my notes. And for whatever reason, I just, I, did I speak about it earlier? I can't even remember. Um, but yeah, he was, he was brilliant when he came on. He brought an energy. He brought um, a threat in behind. He showed incredible bursts of pace at times, even across really short distances to sort of gain advantages. He was robust. He got in behind um, from that Martin Odegaard pass, didn't he? It brilliantly brought it down. He was unlucky that he got closed down. I think as good as the pass was from Odegaard and it needed to be like a, a sort of scooped pass to get it, uh, you know, in beyond the defence. And there wasn't much distance between Odegaard and Enketia. So he, he couldn't have put, you know, like if you flatline it a bit more and you put, the power it needs to get through people, then you're probably going to overhit it. So the only way really to make that pass, like in my opinion, was to do it the way he did. And Ketia brought it down well, but it just didn't come down quick enough for him to, to get the shot off before the defender closed him down. There was another really good moment where he burst through on the right-hand side, got to the byline, cut the ball back, but nobody was on hand to turn it in. Um, yeah, I, I thought he, he was a real, um, a real breath of fresh air when he came along. I thought his display was superb and, and, um, you know, just gave us something a little bit different. And, you know, credit to Mikel Arteta as well, because I talked about Martin Odegaard really setting the tempo and really kind of making that point when we equalised that this wasn't good enough and we still needed more. Mikel Arteta did that as well, didn't he? Because we conceded the goal after, what, 54, 55 minutes, I think. I think it was around that. And to then take your left back off and bring on a striker was like a big message like no no we're not just going to nick and equalize it here we need to fucking win this game and that, and that's what Mikel Arteta did he, he set that standard he made that point and the players thankfully repaid his faith in that and in Ketia you know nobody could argue with the fact that his performance when he came on was superb uh Kribo says what do you think the ceiling is for Arteta in your opinion listen Arteta's still a young developing coach and he'll still have days where he gets it wrong, as do all coaches. But there's still, you know, while I talk about that want to win and that desire to win and that boldness and bravery in the way that he made that change and did it when he did it, I think that there are some negative sides to it as well. Now, I know we won the game and you shouldn't really dwell on this stuff too much, but I think it is worth at least pointing out. I thought when he made that change, Although it gave us an extra dynamic up front and although it gave us an extra body up front, we did lose our structure and we did lose our shape and the game became chaotic. I said earlier on that part of what Mikel Arteta was trying to do was create this chaotic game because he probably felt like it was the best environment in which his team stood the greatest chance of finding the equaliser and then the winner. But to me, against a better team, you would you would pay for that you would pay for that so whilst i want to give him the credit for making the change and i want to give the players the credit for making the change i remember watching it at the time and you can only really go by your feelings at the time because that's probably the truest reflection of your assessment right but i remember watching it and thinking i get why you've made that change but what happens when fulham come down the right hand side their right hand side our left nobody there Martinelli's not going to do it and then we saw Saka go out there for a bit to try and help with that and it just felt a little bit all over the shop we lost our structure and it was as though we didn't trust in the current shape to be able to generate the chances that we needed to get back in the game and maybe Mikel Arteta was proven right in fact he was proven right by the fact that the result turned out the way it did but against the better side they pull you apart there and they take advantage of what I perceive to be a little bit of naivety on um, on uh, Mikel Arteta's um, on Mikel Arteta's part. So yeah, okay. Let's uh, let's continue through the questions. Thank you for that one, mate. Really good one as always. Um, in terms of his ceiling, I know I didn't really answer. It. In terms of his ceiling, who knows, man? Who knows? He could go anywhere if he continues and if he gets the right players and. You get you have the right structure around you. There's no reason why if he's not back that he can't go right to the top. Uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. Uh, lots of signing questions, which I will address probably during the week because we're going to talk. We're going to revert back, I'm sure, uh, to talking about um, to talking about transfers. Uh, you know, as soon as the 
the game is kind of behind us. Uh, SMA uh, Consult says, Harry on a lighter note, you look like Mitrovic to me. Thank you. It's only taken uh, 53 minutes for one today. <laughs> I think there were a few actually um, earlier on in the in the comments as well. I have to say, right, that even though I don't think I look like Alexander Mitrovic, a lot of people tell me I do. I have to say that the picture, the thumbnail of my instant reaction video from the game, yeah, in that I look a bit like Mitrovic. I accept that. I accept that. Uh, okay, what else have we got? Uh, Arthur says, uh, in terms of the Villa game, how much rotation do you expect? Not a lot. Not an awful lot. Um, we've heard, we've seen a clip of um, the Arsenal club doctor being videoed and saying that the 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 absence of Partey, who obviously picked up some sort of thigh problem, and Zinchenko, who had a knee problem, um, was precautionary more than anything. I'd like to think that's the case, but of course you don't know. Arsenal would never want to give that away, really. But I don't think there'll be much rotation. You don't keep chopping and changing a winning team. And I think we played on Saturday. We've got until Wednesday. I think it's a long enough break because, you know, we haven't um, really got into the thick of the season yet. And look, people will say the Europa League is coming up, and it, it is, but I expect the rotation to happen more so in that uh dave atkinson says harry can you please stop saying we have had easy fixtures liverpool have played fulham and palace and did not win i didn't say they were easy fixtures i said they're fixtures that i expect us to win if you want to be in the top four they're fixtures that you should win um in in my personal opinion i know that liverpool didn't win against fulham and they didn't win against palace but people were talking about it being a crisis when Liverpool fail to pick up multi, uh, maximum points in those games, because they are teams that really, yeah, have the capability of producing shocks and producing results, but really they are teams that we should be beating. That was my point. Not that they're easy. I've, I've said time and time again on this show, Dave, that there are no easy fixtures in the Premier League, and I genuinely do believe that. Uh, Wondering Minstrel says, are you disappointed that West Ham are getting Paqueta? Honestly, not really. Um, I like the player. We did quite a bit of analysis on him over the summer when those links were really, um, really prevalent, when they were everywhere. I trust that if Arsenal haven't moved for him, it's because they they don't think he's the right man. The price is reasonable. The price is one that I'm sure Arsenal could have afforded. I did say that for me, the signing of Zinchenko meant cover at left back, but also meant another option in midfield. And that might mean that we were planning to spend less in midfield. So I wouldn't rule out Tielemans, for example, who we could probably get for a much reduced fee, given his contract situation, given the way Leicester's season has started, given the way um, things are panning out with him. But to go 40 plus million, uh, you know, clearly we don't think that Paqueta is the right man. And I would argue that Paqueta still doesn't really address the problem that I'm looking at. So the problem I'm looking at is in that deepest lying midfield role. And Paqueta, for me, is not that. He's not that. He's someone who should play maybe as the the eight, either on the left or the right. So I just trust that Arsenal don't think it's the right move. And it is what it is, man. Like, you know, West Ham have spent a lot of money on a lot of players over the years, and a lot of them have just failed miserably. Um, I'm not saying that Paqueta will. But, you know, I'm not surprised. West Ham have started the season badly as well. There's a lot of pressure on them as a football club to deliver. And I wonder if they've kind of just panicked into doing this a little bit. Bringing a Brazilian uh, with Brazilian caps, fair play to him, it's great. It's a lot of money and, and does he fit into that team? I mean, what, does Thomas Suchet come out of the side? I, I don't know really how that works for them. But, yeah, interesting. Okay, guys, uh, I think uh, I'm going to leave it there. We've been going for the best part of an hour and we will be back, of course, throughout the week with more Arsenal content. We might even bring you something more today if any news uh, of relevance breaks. I uh, just want to say a big hello to the Arse analyst. Uh, <laughs> the way I've said that has not sounded right, mate, but I know what your name, screen name is meant to me. <laughs> He says, big up. I'm new to the channel, bro. Up the Arsenal. If we beat Villa and United, I'm going to start getting carried away slightly. I won't lie. It would be hard not to. The boys, I am proving every game. They are. And we're in a really good space. But yeah, I'm not getting carried away just yet. But welcome to the channel, mate. Great to see you here. 
and uh, thank you for becoming part of the Chronicles of Aguna family. Right. Uh, don't forget to leave a like on the video. We've still not hit that 300 mark, which is disappointing considering how many of you are watching. I do just quickly want to point your attention as well to the latest edition of the Guna fanzine. Uh, if you haven't got it, get online, go to the Guna fanzine's website, uh, give it an order because uh, it's another really great edition. The Guna fanzine needs the support, needs the help as well uh, to kind of keep going. They're looking to get to issue number 300 and they've frozen the prices once again this season, which is pretty admirable when you think about the cost of living crisis and how things have gone up. I know people want, um, you know, people want you to... Um, to freeze prices but it's not always possible when supply and, and chain costs go up so credit to the guys for doing that um and obviously there's a lovely tribute to the legend that is maria uh in this uh in this edition so check it out okay i will catch you all very very soon with more arsenal chat until next time take care of yourselves have a great sunday all the best up the arsenal i'm martin tyler and you're listening to harry Simeon. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.